I can't believe how many families are suffering from this disease. I now know that addiction is a family disease. I thought no one in my family was an addict. I still feel scared to death every day. I don't know how to be a parent anymore. These past few years have been absolutely the toughest time of my entire life. My wife and I don't agree, and this is another big problem. I don't want this to be a secret anymore. That makes it even worse. If I have shame and guilt, how can my daughter ever get better? Being with other parents is being with people who really get it, and that helps me a lot. I've met some incredible people. I can help other people, and I feel better every time I just talk about all this stuff with my group. My life is turned upside down. Even when my son isn't doing so well, we seem to be okay. Talking with other parents helps me stay sane and not to feel so lost and alone. There are good people, good places to get help for my daughter and for our entire family. I have hope. I have to. I am not giving up my daughter. I want to help others. I've met some of the most special human beings. I'm very grateful. Talking with the other parents is helping me to stay sane. Hi, everybody. My name is uh, Steve, and uh, we have a 28-year-old son who's really doing remarkably well, and I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful to see that. It's a, it's a new experience, really, after quite a few years of trying times for him uh, and for our entire family, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have this experience and want to be worthy of it, but I also feel that... Uh, Without all of you, I don't know what kind of shape I'd be in. So it is, uh, it's important for me to, uh, to be here with all of you. Hi, I'm V, and our 28-year-old is doing well. I am especially looking forward to tonight's discussion. Um, holidays, not so much uh, make me anxious, but uh, big gatherings, weddings, birthdays, um, a lot of unknown people still... Uh, gives me reason to uh, lose a few hours sleep. So uh, um, it's good to see you all and good to be together. I'm Carolyn. It's good to be here tonight. I uh, haven't really seen my daughter in a couple of months or talked to her. I'm going to see her this weekend. So it's timely to, to share and maybe get some advice. And it's just good to be here with you all tonight. Good evening. I'm Jay. I have uh, two children in recovery, a 26-year-old 20, son who is, I believe, two years sober or so, and a 24-year-old daughter who's two and a half years. Um, my daughter was with us uh, for the last five or six days over the Thanksgiving break, and um, I've learned a lot by coming to groups and how to deal with, with children regardless of whether they're sober or not. We had a wonderful visit. And I'm grateful for being able to um, continuing to attend these type of meetings. Hi, I'm Kate. I have a uh, son who's 16 years in recovery, and I'm uh, the main support for a niece who's at her 18th month mark uh, from a recovery from a heroin addiction. And we didn't see her this Thanksgiving. She was solo down um, because she couldn't get off from work. And it was an interesting experience trying to support somebody long distance. So uh, I'm looking for some support on how I could have done a better job on that. Hi, I'm Mark, and it is a pleasure to be with everyone tonight. I have a daughter who's 25 who today is 46 months sober. Um, I did not see her Thanksgiving. She lives in Arizona. That's where her sober community is, and that's where she's done her recovery. And it was okay that I didn't see her. She FaceTimed me. Um, she was in a good place, and the next few weeks will be interesting. Hi, I'm Peter. Uh, it's my first time joining this group, and it's great to be here. Uh, we just had Thanksgiving with uh, our 23-year-old son, who's about... Um, going on 14 months uh, sober. And it was a wonderfully low-key, uh, relaxed Thanksgiving, which 
um, I really wasn't expecting, kind of didn't know what to expect. <laughs> um, but uh, it turned out to be a, you know, a very nice, mellow uh, time. Um, quite a contrast from last year at this time. Uh, but it's, uh, it's great to be here to, to share and, and, uh, and learn. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve. I have five children, the youngest of whom uh, suffers from an alcohol use disorder. Uh, thankfully, he's doing really well. He's sober a little over four years, which is just amazing to me. We just had a very nice uh, Thanksgiving with uh, the family, and um, I'm looking forward to tonight's meeting. Hi, my name is Kate Appleman. I'm the Senior Clinical Director at Karen Treatment Centers. Uh, I've been with Karen about 16 years, uh, working with men and women, executives in the relapse program, uh, and I also am very grateful to be here. I know a lot about addiction from a personal and a professional standpoint, and um, the power of a parent support group is something that I'm very much looking forward to be a part of. So tonight's topic is holidays, birthdays, and weddings. So first let me say uh, happy holidays to everyone uh, here today. I wish you all an uneventful, <laughs> low stress, and joyous time with family and friends. And I'm sure that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Um, what I will say about holidays, birthdays, and weddings is that for me, when dealing with a child that has a substance use disorder, these are very high-pressure events. What makes them intense for me is the high level of emotions and the expectations of drinking and partying, even at family functions. New Year's Eve, the Thursday before Thanksgiving, we tried to limit my son's exposure with his friends, but it was just, it was such a fight every single time. It was unbearable because he just wanted to be with his friends and we wanted to protect him. And it's just a classic dilemma. Uh, we desperately wanted our son to, to have fun with his friends, except for him, being at these parties was dangerous. So very, very difficult. And you know, I would love to hear advice on how to deal with that because I think a lot of it's, it's a classic issue. One change that we did make, which I think was a positive change, was to take al alcohol out of our house, even for family celebrations. And rather than blame my son and his condition, one of the things that I learned from people in this room um, was to basically say that I personally was not comfortable having alcohol in our house for these events. And what was interesting was, first of all, it had the advantage of being true. I wasn't uh, comfortable with it. But the other thing that was really interesting was when I talked to my siblings and I talked to my parents and I talked to the other people who would be um, uh, involved in these family events, they were cool. They basically said, no problem. And then the feedback I got after the events was that they were fun. And so it was very interesting because alcohol has been central to our family for a really long time. And when we took it out of the family, um, it essentially was not uh, that big a deal. Um, I guess that um, I, I know clearly that I have not cornered the market on understanding how to deal with these events. Um, I learned that they're hard. They're basically a rough road. Uh, I learned to keep vigilant. And I learned to accept drama, not just from my son, but from everyone in the family, because the, the expectations, the emotions ran so high that we had a lot of drama over the years. And so what I'm hoping to do tonight is just to learn from all of you. So I recall, and you know, looking back sometimes it sounds a little humorous, but there was nothing funny about it at all. I must have moved those bottles around our house a dozen times in a year. I'm like sticking them in boxes and in the closet, taking them out. And it scared the hell out of me. Every time there was going to be a celebration with people in our home. And just like you, Stephen, I, I, uh, I stopped drinking anything at any of those events, birthdays, holidays, celebrations, because I just didn't feel comfortable. And our son said, he didn't want to be felt uncomfortable by having alcohol taken out of the occasion when he said he was able to handle it. So I'm like, he's saying one thing. I'm feeling another thing. I'm reading about how scary this all is. And 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 for a long time, a couple of years, it was the dance of those bottles back and forth. Um, but I realize also that I guess I really liked the holidays. 
in retrospect, even though I've heard so many parents say, and I've joined in, if we could abolish them, it would be better. If we didn't have any of these holidays, it would be a little less stress in my household. And part of what I think I lost is that free sort of holiday sort of activity of having people. But I think, I think I'm getting it back. I'm getting it back without the alcohol. But it's taken a long time. And the other thing I just want to mention is that I never thought about it until very recently. I'm nervous at these big events about the inquisition of my son, about what are you doing, where have you been, why are you living there, etc. But he's not. And if he's not, I've got to get over it. <laughs> because he's teaching me. He's teaching me about what's important and how he feels. And, and it's, a, it's a transformative sort of feeling that, that I am being guided by the recovery uh, of our son. And I, I think that's remarkable. Your son is certainly less sensitive than my daughter. I think that varies from kid to kid, how much they're comfortable with us sharing and talking about their issues. Yeah, I think I think it has a lot to do with where they are in the whole um, recovery. And, you know, early on with my son, there's no doubt that, you know, going to a family event, I mean, some of the worst um, blackout drunk nights actually happened under the roof of family members, right? So because it was just so easy to access and, you know, he was pretty young. And so there's a lot of danger before um, somebody's into, you know, or my son was into real recovery. But my son had a similar reaction to you. When he was feeling stronger in his recovery, it was almost like um, a, a badge that he wore, like, I'm fine. I don't want you to limit um, the, you know, the alcohol at these events. I'm good. I can handle this. And, you know, it really was me that was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. And so, like you, Steve, um, my son has brought me along because it took me longer to become comfortable than he. And just like you, Stephen, and Steve, my daughter basically said, Dad, I'm fine. It's you. What's your problem with this? I don't want a drink. You can have a drink. And I never felt more guilty than the first glass of wine I poured in front of her. And there was no complications, which kind of shocked me. I also think um, I'm hearing Carolyn and uh, Steve and Steve and Mark uh, talking about um, your examples. I think that the the more comfortable that our kids are in recovery, the more comfortable we become, but it's not always at the same pace. And that's the frustrating part. I always think about the analogy of um, when I see people come into treatment for the first time, it's almost like they're getting on a train and their family members are getting on a separate train and you would hope that they're all going in the same direction. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And sometimes one train goes faster than the other. Sometimes family members get into recovery before our loved ones do. And one of the, one of the pieces that many times we feel the most powerless over is the time frame of it all, right? Um, and wanting to be able to control the time frame of it and we can't always necessarily uh, we talk about the anonymity of of recovery and what that looks like for people and the fact that their story is their story. But what I hear as a part of the struggle is how do we understand their story and what we can and can't say? And that's a struggle that is so common for family members. Um, it is their story. And a part of our own recovery as family members is we don't want to get into lies and deception, right? We want to have integrity and be who we are wherever we are. Um, and that's a balance that I hear a lot of family members struggle with as well. I think, I think you reminded me of the math problem in middle school where the train leaves the station at 1 o'clock going so many miles an hour and the next train <laughs> leaves at an hour later, but it's going faster or whatever. Um, I think you, you hit upon something for me. There's, um, especially early on, there's a, there's a happiness to have them there at these events, and there's also a bit of a relief to not have them there at the events at the same time. And neither one feels 100% right. And I've always been um, super, uh, I don't know, settled in the idea of it is his to tell, 
his story to tell. And as time has gone by, I've noticed that he wants to tell it, that in the beginning, he would ask my permission. We were at a wedding a few months ago, and he said, you know, is it okay? I, I said, absolutely. Tell people what you, you know, what you do for a living, what you do, what, where you've been, what you, whatever you want. It's up to you. But I think you're right about us not wanting to lie and then at the same time protecting them. Uh, that's, uh, that's still, I don't know, it's delicate. So I was at a meeting <clears throat> a few weeks ago. I, I attend um, a couple of parents' book group meetings for between eight and nine years now, every week. And uh, a few weeks ago, there was a woman, a relatively new child, was in a, in a center, in a rehab facility for about three weeks now, and um, or at that time. And I, I said after she had spoken, um, a little tug-in-cheek, but very seriously, I said, be careful what you wish for. She was very upset that her son was going to be spending his birthday in treatment and not going to be home. There were quite a few birthdays that would have been much better spent in treatment than at home in uh, in, in in my life and, and in lives that I've learned about through coming to these meetings. So she got tremendous support that evening. Um, there were 35 people or so in the room, and almost every single one of them had had, or many of them had had a child in a treatment center for their birthday or for a holiday or for Christmas or, or whatever. So... Um, I think she left comfortable and uh, came back the next week, and um, the child was uh, was a twin, and uh, which made it probably a little more uh, challenging. Um, but she came back next week and it was all good. My guess is, I don't know what I guess, but it's possible that if the child was home, it would not have been all good. So sometimes when you get it, bring it right down to the basics. It does make it a little easier. It's just very difficult to uh, to, to conceptualize that. Um, not only that your child is not with you for an important occasion, but why they're not with you makes it even more difficult, probably. Sometimes I think there's a war between your brain and your heart where people tell you things that make sense and you intellectually understand them, but it hurts too much because your your feelings are so strong like, but we should be together, you know, that we should be celebrating, okay? Um, it's also hard, I think, as a parent to accept that a child is better someplace else, not with you uh, during a time when they need, uh, they need professionals. I think if you've been through this enough and, and get educated and come to these types of meetings long enough, very frequently you can, you can get to the point where you realize that they will be with you at future celebrations if they're not with you now. And, um, it, you know, it sounds a little corny. I don't think it's corny at all for anyone sitting here this evening. Um, it is so incredibly real. So for me, my kid, uh, she's not homeless, but she's not in recovery. She's not in a good place. I, um, She will not be with me over the holidays. And I think... She's had a long journey. It's been hard. And for me, I'm just trying to accept, surrender that I've done the best I can and to have a good life. I mean, I I know um, I'm also divorced, and so I have plans for Christmas. I expect I will get some call at some point over the holidays that's really trying to get me to do something or give money or send something and um, already know what I'm going to do for her for Christmas. And I will see her this weekend, and I will hold my boundary on that unless she asks for help. And um, she has always known that I will support her in recovery, which would be the best Christmas present ever. Um but if that's not the case, I am still, hopefully, we'll have a good Christmas, too, with people that I love, friends, and family. And I also think our kids have these stories, but we have our stories, too. And, you know, as a parent, I um, 
want to be respectful of my kid, but I also want to be, I don't want to keep this disease in the closet. I want to be op- open and honest and where it's appropriate, um, share with other people. So I, I realize that um, a lot of the anxiety that I felt in the run-up to, to this holiday, and it's, it's been true when I look back over the last year at, at birthdays and other sort of calendar events, um, some of it uh, had to do with our son and, and where he was at and how he might react to this event and, um, and so forth, although... As time has gone on, uh, my worries have been uh, sort of less about that um, as, you know, I, and I guess just sort of the evidence of my eyes, you know, have, has sort of supported that. Um, but a, a lot of uh, the, the, the issues that I had, particularly around this holiday and when I look forward to the birthdays that we have in our family this month and, and, and uh, New Year's, Christmas, et cetera, um, it has to do with me. It has to do with, um, well, I guess one of the lessons I really, uh, that was so important to me that, that I learned in the last year is, is the, um, the imperative, the, just the huge benefit of staying in the now, of living in the present tense, right? And not spending a whole lot of time in the useless, you know, pursuit of woulda, coulda, shoulda, and not spending a whole lot of time trying to forecast the future, either a catastrophic future, which is you know so easy to imagine, or some fantastical future, you know, less easy to imagine, but it's out there. Um, and I realized that these calendar events, they are an open Im- invitation to do exactly that. They they pull at least for me, they pull me out out of the now, <laughs> and and invite me to revisit past Thanksgivings, past birthdays. And if only I had known then, what was I missing then? I thought that was such a happy time and what an idiot I was, that kind of thing. Or, you know, to think about, well, what what will Thanksgiving next year look like? And what does the future look like? And uh, That's it, the road to hell. <laughs> totally the road to hell, <laughs> 100%. Peter, I get into the same kind of trouble, but I'm the fixer. I want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to have the right food. I want everybody to be safe. I want, you know, so the bottles get moved, the, this happens, the, what do you, you know, what can I do to make this better for you it gets me into a lot of trouble and gets me away from enjoying the moment so that I find myself so into what's going to work for everybody else. I miss the holiday. And I'm working really hard. This Thanksgiving, I worked really hard. Who, who's ordering the Whole Foods turkey? Okay, you're in charge. Of son number three, you're in charge of that. And I delegated out for the first time because I thought, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to give jobs away. And I think that's from all of you guys helping me figure out, I want to be happy too. This is crazy. I'm, making every, I'm busy trying to get everybody else happy. But at the same time, then I worry, or, you know, my niece was not with us. Is she safe? Is she doing something? Is she? And I try to get away from that worry, not successfully. But also, Kate, you know, I, I really do feel this way. It's just a meal. It's just a meal. I've said this before, but there'll be one before this one, and there'll be one after this one. And it'll be as good, maybe not, maybe better. It, it, it really is. You have is. reminded me many times. It's just a meal. <laughs> it's just a meal. And I think, um, not to be, you know, but I think we overemphasize celebrating in this country. I mean, celebrate this and celebrate that. And so, I mean, just getting together and having a meal is a nice thing. I, I, I try not to put so much emphasis on the celebration. You know, what are we celebrating, really? It's a beautiful day. It's an, it's, so is tomorrow. So um, I just wanted to thank you, Carolyn, for the share, because you very quickly brought me back to um, what it was like when my son was um, not doing great, um, and it was the uncertainty you know, you were very articulate about how uncertain 
You don't know what's what's going to happen. The volatility, um, the need to sort of um, just do whatever you can to kind of survive and take care of yourself. I mean, it you know, a few years back it was triage, and you know the the volatility that happened in our family. I mean, his illness was so devastating to everyone in our family. And the way that he was behaving was so upsetting that, you know, we literally had um, at one point my daughter storming out of the house and walking to the train station, which was miles away in, you know, like zero degrees weather, would not take a ride because she was so upset with what was going on in the house. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was the holidays. Uh, my birthday was the day after Christmas, and, you know, we had a big brouhaha. All I wanted was to have a meal with, our, with my kids and have peace. But that couldn't happen. And then, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. And so you brought me right back with your story, which is one of just complete uncertainty and complete volatility. Carolyn, thank you so much for your share. I, uh, you know, you talk about the word triage, Stephen, and it's such a great word. I think of the the comparison of playing whack-a-mole, right? There's an issue that comes up, and we react to the issue, and the next issue comes up, and we react to this one, and we're waiting for the next shoe to drop or the next issue to come up. And one of the things that you had said that I really appreciated was that you have a plan in place, that you know, when we talk about the, we hope for the best and we plan for the worst, right? Um, One of the greatest gifts that could come this Christmas is recovery for her. And there's a part of you that you have a plan in place for this weekend when you do spend time with her. And I think about the idea of, as parents, being in recovery, no matter what's happening with our kids. And part of that being in recovery is knowing what the plan is, knowing what the boundary is. And going into the situation with honesty, you know, here's what I would love. Um, Here's transparently how I am. Here's what I am and I'm not willing to do. I think about a lot of the insanity that comes along with the holidays is, uh, you know, expectations. A lot of it comes from expectations. And we forget the simple moments. So you talk about living in the day and how holidays can really drive us away from the whole mindset of being aware of living in the moment. And really, that's what it should always be about, the simplicity of the meal, the spending time with the people that we care about. And I think that in society, there's so many extras. There's so much noise around holidays and giving and more and more and more that part of recovery is about being able to turn the volume down and really focus on the things that are important um, and being an example of that that's within our control. I I, am... It's funny how you remember things. Uh, v, uh, it's another meal. And that's sort of the way I think of stuff. But when I look back, it wasn't another meal. One year, my son was in jail for Thanksgiving and called us. And um, I never thought I would have to speak to my son in jail, let alone on Thanksgiving, let alone with his grandparents there who got to speak to him also. Um, and he was slightly over 18 years old at that time. Um, and then from there, he went to uh, rehab in Christmas, and he called us. We celebrate Hanukkah, but he called us and told us what kind of meal he was having on Christmas. It was a better meal than I've ever had, actually. It was a wonderful meal at, at a wonderful treatment facility. <laughs> so it's funny how you sort of get these things sort of stuck in your memory. I don't remember, you know, last Thursday's Thanksgiving as well as I do that phone call from jail, which was uh, just a, a strange thing. I, I imagine at some point tonight someone will speak in Kate might respond to the Bermuda Triangle of addiction, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And these are things that I've learned that were just total disasters for many people who, who are addicts. Um, and um, it uh, it's, it's, it's brings back memories. Uh, this this week, uh, my daughter and I have a tradition. The last three years on Thanksgiving morning, we go to an open AA meeting. And um, each year in this meeting in New Jersey, there's between 80 and, and 100 people. And they talk about 
I love it. I, I can't wait till next Thanksgiving for the meeting. But they talk about their experiences in uh, Thanksgiving and what they're doing differently to make it through that day, just that day. And they weren't worrying about the next day. Wonderful. I think I was, I was scared. I was scared I was going to screw it up, that everyone was going to be there and something was going to happen or we were going to be at the wedding or something was going to happen or someone was going to say something and that it was all so fragile that I would have been sort of responsible for having started the next tsunami. I have begrudgingly accepted the fact that my powers are limited and that um, turns out maybe I'm not the controlling factor in these uh, matters, but a contributing factor, uh, admittedly. Um, so I think it's it's out of anxiety that I was so uptight about it. I'd rather not have the birthday party than, than deal with, with all of that. In response to that, last year my daughter came home for the holidays, and I had my girlfriend and I cleaned the house out of every alcoholic beverage like we started to say tonight. And this year I was kind of relieved that she didn't come back because I didn't have to move anything <laughs> and I didn't have to worry about it. Um, I don't know if that's selfish or what, but I think it's reality. I don't know if I'll ever relax. You know, Kate, you said before, there comes a point where the addict is comfortable with where they are at and then the parent has to be. I don't know if I ever will be. I'm always fearful that something will happen. And I'm kind of relieved that this year with the holidays, I'm not dealing with that. There's so much about addiction that's traumatic, right? That waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're not sure if you'll ever be comfortable. Those are all side effects of trauma secondary to addiction, right? And we talk about that so frequently. And trying to manage the situation, Jay, you gave the example before of the woman you ran into in the support group who was so worried about her loved one being in treatment during the holiday. And I can't even tell you the amount of Thanksgivings that I have spent and New Year's days that I have spent at treatment with other patients there um, that have had great holidays. And what they talk about in group is the ability to be sober and present, maybe with people that they don't fully know, but to be sober and to be present. Um, to be able to give their kids sometimes the gift of not being drunk at the dinner table. They're able to talk about those things and have great meals up there. I just approved people playing flag football this past um, Thanksgiving. And Could be dangerous. Thank goodness there were no injuries, <laughs> right? Probably not great from a risk perspective. But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be able to have clean, sober fun together in a group of men. And that was a great Thanksgiving for them. So I think many times we have this fear that they're not going to be taken care of. I also know that addicts and alcoholics are some of the most resourceful people we know. Mm -hmm. um, even in early recovery, they're able to find people to help really make sure that they are taken care of in treatment. Um, which is, has year after year been beautiful to see. So I just want to say that out loud, uh, given the story that you were talking about. So back to the um, planning, one of the things that I'm really grateful for, uh, from going to these support groups, I've learned about a lot of resources, and I have an interventionist, and it's a, a really busy job. This is a luxury for me, but... On retainer, but what that means is I have someone who can help me if she does want help and to go into treatment. She is, um, I'm not quite sure, I have no idea what the next right thing for her would be. And so I have a professional who can work with her insurance, who also is the interventionist type that will go and get someone, drive them, help with the logistics help find the right place, and, um, you know, I think that just, uh, that takes a lot of worry off of my shoulders, and I think, especially during the holidays when things can come up at the last minute, it's nice to know that you have help. And it's that you're comfort, not alone. It's a comfort to have a plan. Carolyn, Always. I never thought of that. And just mm -hmm. to have that as a backup, mm -hmm. it's got to be so good for you. Yeah. The other thing about the holidays is that um, 
when you gather around with a lot of people that maybe you don't normally see all the time, whether it's your family or not, is everyone is on display, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you have these reports of, oh, what have you been up to and what have you been up to and all these announcements. Um, It's it's sort of like a Facebook event, you know, where people only talk about the great things that are going on with their children and... All of whom have fellowships... <laughs> and, and have been made senior vice president <laughs> and have the second grandchild taking cruises and going yeah. to Harvard. <laughs> right. right. Um, in my family, you talked before about your son wanting to to s- tell his story. The my family doesn't want to hear it. You know what I've realized in looking back over the years that good Irish, you know, Catholic family. The alcohol is how a lot of, you know, of 20 grandchildren, four addicts, the alcohol started for those kids very, very young and was provided at the family celebrations. They were, you know, uh, my nieces and my son will talk, they were drinking when they were 11, 12 years old. And I guess we didn't notice. I not I guess. I know we didn't notice. And so that we were their entree into this, lifestyle. And one of the things that happened in my family is the progression of how much alcohol that got served over the years increased and increased and increased. You know, my mother had an 80th birthday party celebration a few years back, or 85th, two years ago. We have three children who are, you know, at that point sober. And my sister says, well, we need a keg of beer. I said, it's an 85th birthday party. Why do you need a keg of beer for? <laughs> you know, that's how that's how corrupt we had become in our celebrations. We're not just moving a few bottles. We're bringing in the kegs in there. You know, one Thanksgiving, they're playing beer pong. And I thought, where did this happen? And at that point, my son was sober, and it was awkward for him to, you know, he would leave before that part of the evening started. But my family doesn't want to hear anybody's story. They want to pretend everything's okay. And if you're actively using, you're just not invited to the celebration. That's how we deal with it. So we don't have to worry about something going wrong. We just exclude that person. I, you know, so there's, you know, and I look back and I think this was so unsupportive and unloving and unkind. You know, why? my one niece called me up and said, uh, you know, Aunt Kate, I'm not invited to Christmas. I said, oh, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. Well, it turned out she wasn't invited to Christmas because my brother had decided she was using, you know, he she wasn't doing what he wanted her to do. She wasn't welcome to the family celebration. So we use holidays to punish people, too. Mm-hmm. You know, There's a big family me, for you. It makes me a little bit ashamed. <laughs> We're only children. So, yeah. <laughs> so I come from a really big family, and fortunately... Um, they responded differently, as I said before. But, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, um, that you know, the family was the one supplying. We have a beach house, and my wife and I were literally stocking the fridge with beer, showing up with red cups, so that when the kids were there, it was an awesome time, and we had the most fun house that anybody's ever had, right? No one can get in trouble um, because you know the beach community was very, very safe. We were on a dead-end street, yada, 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 except for the fact that we were supporting and um, you know getting people who are under the age drinking at a very, very serious level. And so what was interesting was the next summer, my son was beginning recovery, and we just shut it down. The fraternity was shut down. Right, and literally, and we showed up with Gatorade, <laughs> ginger ale, um, you know, and other iced tea, lemonade, and the kids were playing games. They weren't playing beer pong, but they were playing cards. They were playing other games. They were having a ball. It was as loud and as boisterous, but there was no. We didn't uh, sort of supply the alcohol to sort of take it to to the level. They didn't need it. You know, if you have 15 or 12 kids who are between 16 and 24, they're going to have a damn good time, whether they have alcohol there or not. And there were no complaints about it. 
So, you know, I know it's a different uh, sort of answer than, than in your family dynamic, but it can be done. I mean, our son, about less than a year ago, who'd been in recovery then, a couple of years already, we went into a restaurant where we know the owner, and he brought us four shots of tequila, and he wanted to join in with us. And my blood pressure went up, like, really, really quickly. And I looked at him. He looked at me. And he went, cheers. And I took the glass and put it down to the side. And I said, you okay? He says, yeah, I got this. He said, I've got to be able to live. I've got to be able to carry on. He said, I've had many toasts, many cheers, you know. But this is just a year ago, and I remember feeling the rest of the night, that shock of terror that, oh, my God, it's all going to fall apart. You know? you know, you used the word before. It was a haunting word. You used the word fragile. And it is so apt. It so clearly describes what it's like in dealing with someone um, that's not in recovery or that's in early recovery. It just seems like it's so fragile. And Kate, you were talking about how you're trying to control everything. Boy, that is a tough thing to do when you have a very thin pane of glass. I mean, it's as fragile as it gets. And when you set it, it just kind of sent a, sh- uh, you know, a, a, you know, like a, a shock through my body because that word right there describes exactly what it felt like. It felt fragile. It didn't feel permanent. It felt like the smallest little pebble could shatter the whole thing. So one thought that comes to mind as you're talking about the word fragile um, is when I think about relapse prevention, I think about the concept of a relapse warning sign. And a relapse warning sign isn't just about the alcohol at the wedding or the shot that was put in front of your son uh, or the joint that gets passed around haphazardly at a party that they didn't think it was going to be there. Uh, It has to do with what's going on in the outside, in the environment, like the shot, the alcohol at the wedding, the joint, in conjunction with how someone is, how they are how stable they are from a a mental, emotional, physical, spiritual standpoint, how stable they are. Because in that moment, when your son says, it's okay, dad, I got this, it's because in that moment, there was an internal stability for him, that he had an internal strength in his recovery that he could handle that situation. You can handle the joint being passed around when you have that stability. That stability in early recovery You get a few days of it here and there, and those days become bigger and longer the longer you're in recovery. But the reason why we use the word fragile, not only in active addiction, but also in early recovery, is because that centeredness doesn't happen instantly when we put down a drink or a drug. It doesn't just happen. It's something that uh, is grown into. Um, The other reality is there's a lot of self-sabotage that comes along with addiction for so many different reasons that even when I feel okay and stable, there must be something wrong or something is going to be wrong very soon, right? So that comfort of just being the word content, just being content in my own skin, that's something that in early recovery we need to grow into bit by bit. So when I think about that warning sign and that fear of someone being fragile, I constantly am reminded of the fact that, you know, you may not want to go to concerts in early recovery or not may not be around alcohol as much in early recovery because you need that centeredness. And as that happens, you can live life on life's terms a little bit easier as the time goes on. So those are some of the things that I think of as I hear you all talking. So you're saying that is the right concept. It is fragile early on. So, Kate, you mentioned, you know, the longer you're in it, um, longer in your recovery. So I assume um, that the longer you're in recovery, well, the, the statistics prove this out, the greater chance you have to remain in recovery. Um, but I always thought, and, and do think, that your first year, uh, especially if you're young, but not, maybe not even if you're young, but your first year, to the extent you have the ability to, to be in a program, um, you get to anniversary all of these things that used to be big events, 
Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, a birthday, a death, a funeral. My daughter was a few months in a, in a, in a rehab facility, um, and uh, her grandmother passed away, and that was a big deal. Um, she came down with a sober escort, came back to our house, stayed for a brief period, and went back with the sober escort. She was prepared and ready to leave, had a plan, and did it. But I, I think it's difficult from what I understand and what I learned through this. It's difficult for the addict to realize that you can actually go to Christmas without being drunk or high. You can go to New Year's Eve. There's a lot of fun, sober New Year's Eve events that my daughter children go to now. Um, so that anniversary of these kinds of things, to the extent someone has the ability to remain in a program longer rather than less, um, it's incredibly beneficial just for the memories of, wow, Thanksgiving was okay sober. I can do that. A lot of people don't think they could. I could hang out with my family, 20-some-odd assholes at the dinner table. I can't do that without getting high. That's not doable. <laughs> and then they did it. Come next year. These markers, are, they're interesting. Um, remember the first time that I felt a little bit of confidence in my son's sobriety. I found out um, after, probably a couple of weeks after, from my daughter, that my son went through a weekend where in the same weekend, it was his first year, he's a freshman at college, he was seven months sober. It was spring weekend, huge trigger. He and his girlfriend of multiple years broke up, huge trigger, and it was his birthday. So, um, you know, he was a little shaky, and he, he called my daughter, my daughter, my sister, uh, my, yeah, my daughter, called my daughter and um, went to New York City, had uh, dinner with her. You know, she sort of calmed him down, and he made it through. And I found out a few weeks later, and I was like, wow, that's like a triple threat right there. That's tough, and he made it through. And so at that point, he probably was a um, lot, lot less fragile than he had been earlier. Um, so that was, that was the first time that I got a little bit of confidence that the recovery had staying power, that he could get through something that was pretty big, and actually it was three at once. Stephen, I was going to say, uh, using the sober network, you know, that's what your son did. That's what my niece did this past couple of weeks, using her sober network, her sponsor, her, you know, who's available for her to call to get the support she needs in that moment. And aren't we lucky it's not us? You know, aren't we, you know, I'm glad I'm out of that business, that she's got all of these resources. My son has all of these resources to call, and it, it does, I can just be the mommy. And I love that piece of the job. I do want to say something about menus, though, and how one of the biggest problems in our family was we had to change our traditional Christmas dinner because it was beef bourguignon, and it included wine. And while my son has no problem with anybody drinking around him, I cannot use any alcohol in the food I cook. So we he insists on an alcohol-free menu. And because alcohol doesn't burn off in the cooking, he turns out he's right. <laughs> but that was a big problem for my other kids because you know it was a real shift in a traditional meal that had to go by the wayside, and it just doesn't taste as good. I know that I will ask my son in the next couple of weeks, <coughs> so what are you doing on New Year's Eve? Because I will feel more comfortable knowing if he's got a plan. And for these last several years, he's had a plan. And he got that from others who guided him when he didn't have any idea, didn't have any plan. And I've heard him say and others, the music never sounded so good. <laughs> oh. He never heard it. That's what it was like. That's what it was like. And, I mean, it is a new era for for me, for him. But... It's still 
it's going to take me maybe 20 or 30 years more <laughs> to uh, to not sort of want to say to him, what are you doing on New Year's Eve, knowing what is all wrapped up into these holidays uh, is, is stuff that's that's not good for him. I, I, I wouldn't suggest you should do what you're not going to do, but I don't do that anymore. And I thought I'd probably do that. And it has nothing to do with what you're doing on New Year's Eve. Just very little do I ask or tell my children what to do unless I'm asked. Then, I, then I'm allowed and, and I share. But I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't want to hear the wrong answer. So that's not a good answer. Then what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm doing, Dad. Not quite sure what we're doing yet. I don't got a plan. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to be in that position. So I, I don't. I don't do that anymore. And I've gotten really good at it. Um, and I'm just fool myself. I actually am very comfortable not. Well, I, I, I know that it's what I don't say anymore. Probably has more power and more influence than what than what I do say these days. I, I think they're potentially. For me, a lot of triggers on both sides with that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I could be triggered by the answer, and my my daughter, when she's healthy and when she's not healthy, either way. Um, I mean, I she's never been two plus years into recovery would be triggered by that. I suspect I could be wrong, but I suspect. I think it's also about the motive for asking the question, right? Um, Jay, you had talked about what if what if the what if I get the wrong answer? It's, a, it's about the motive and the the reasoning really for asking that question. Um, I'm hearing a lot around um, the circle in regard to planning and really what that looks like. What is what does the planning look like? And so many times. Things happen because we just forgot to communicate it or didn't talk about it because we were afraid to. We were afraid to ask the question about the menu. We were afraid to ask if Christmas was going to be really special for you this year, what would that look like for you? Um, And then really compare it to what it might look like for me and the rest of my family and have the conversation. Because I think so many times with active addiction and fear-based communication, we just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So having the conversation with um, an honest heart and uh, really questioning what our motive is for asking the question is uh, is so funny. My uh, my older son is almost seventeen, and I just found out what FOMO stands for. Anybody? <laughs> I was a little late to the game. You are late. <laughs> very late to the game. Fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Right? That's so right. So many times when you think about early recovery, there's people that they have that fear of missing out. What if staying at home and playing games with my friends who are also sober? What if I? What if I'm going to miss out on something else? And when they allow themselves to do that and be present in the moment, many times they realize they had a much better time doing that anyway, right? Um, So I think about the importance of communicating what would a really good holiday look like for you this year and how can we work together as a family, whatever family means in that moment. It may mean for your niece, her family in that moment may be her sober support network. That's her family and that's okay. That's maybe what she needs in that moment. But as having that conversation about what the expectations are um, and really what would make it a great holiday of connectedness. You know, what does that look like for people? So just some thoughts as we're, as we're talking. I mean, for a lot of us, for myself included, the holidays have always been filled with a certain amount of tension and anxiety and Getting together with people who you've avoided most of the year sometimes, your, fa- <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your family. <laughs> Where you, you talk know. behind their back all yeah. the time. <laughs> you know, and all of that. And this has just put a whole new layer of basis for genuine anxiety um, that I'm, I'm working on, on, on trying to cope with. I, I know one, one of the things that I noticed um, this, this Thanksgiving and as we – uh, you know, we're, we're awash as I guess a lot of people are awash in, I don't know what to call it. The kind of Hallmark channel holiday porn. I don't know what, you know, it's just <laughs> the endless, you the, these endless uh, you know, imagery of, of perfect, you know, father knows best Hallmark channel moments, um, that, that 
you know, amazingly don't depict families like mine, you know, families that are dealing with the kinds of things that we're dealing with around the table. Those don't tend to be a part of the, you know, the, the narrative line. And, and for a while I was like, like really resentful of it and, and resentful of all of the sort of holiday imagery and this, this kind of perfect family stuff. Um, and then I started just finding it almost surreal. Uh, but it, it dawned on me that, you know, when I, when I looked back to where we were at a year ago, um, compared to that, uh, this is the first Thanksgiving uh, that I recall. I, I mean, I, I, the things that we have to be thankful for are, are just amazing. Like, you know, not a lot of people, people around this table, yes, but not a, a whole lot of other people you know, in, in my life, can I talk to at length about it, you know, about the kind of gratitude that, that I've experienced, but it is a more real and substantive Thanksgiving than I've experienced in a long time. So Uh, when you think about it, Peter, I was, I was thinking about what the real struggle is, is how to figure out a way to celebrate these gatherings and holidays when your kid is not healthy. That's the, that's the piece that, um, we all got very either creative or or put our heads in the sand or um you know all those those things um it's 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 all challenging it's it's all just hard. keep going to parent support groups <laughs> go when you don't need to and go when you need to it is yeah. incredibly helpful I, my kid was four and a half years homeless and i thought about him every single day and enjoyed the holidays as best I could. I, I think for me, it's, it's really important to have a plan. I've had years where I didn't know where's my daughter going to be? Is she um, sort of in between or in treatment or not in treatment? I mean, plans can be adapted if they need to, but I think it's important to have a plan so that you're just not home by yourself or with your family. Mm-hmm. When your kid's out on mm-hmm. a joy ride somewhere and you have no idea where they are. Mm-hmm. Or having them home where, when you don't know what drama they're going to bring to home. That's not the place for them, perhaps. There's that fine balance between fixing and micromanaging. I think you used the word um, fixing before, Kate. And um, ensuring that things are manageable, that's within your control. Um, And when you talk about having a plan and setting boundaries, right, this is what is and is not acceptable in my home. Um, For some of it, you can talk about salvaging it for um, the other family members and children that you have um, to create an experience that is healthy and manageable. And some of it's for you. And making sure that you have your own health and your own manageability. And so many times, I think, as parents, we're like the last people that we think of, right? We need to make sure everybody else is in place and okay, and then we'll figure ourselves out. Um, But the truth is, we can only give that which we have. And we can't give sanity and stability if we don't have it ourselves. So that's the importance of that plan that you really talk about. Um, And also, not putting ourselves in positions to play roles that we have no business playing. When you think about drug testing our kids, being a probation officer, an interventionist, a family counselor, a whatever it is that we try to find these different hats to wear, um, just being mom and just being dad, I think, is more than enough of a hat um, that, you know, we don't need to wear hats that, that we don't necessarily need to. So reaching out and asking for help and having the interventionist and having your support network here and continuing to come back, uh, I think of the phrase... You know, we do the best we can with what we have. We are doing the best we can right now, and we can do better. And I think the reason why you guys keep showing up is because you know you're doing the best you can, and you can also do better. And that's why you show up for each other, for yourselves, and probably for people that are listening. It is always so good to be together. Thank you, everybody. This is a podcast by parents for parents. We are not professionals, but parents offering our own experiences with the hope that it might help others. We are not experts, and our words are our own, with views not necessarily shared by care and treatment centers. Nothing that we offer in our comments should be considered instructional or diagnostic. Definitely not treatment. 
and it is not specific to any particular person, just our general thoughts based upon our own experiences with our family members. Please visit, call, consult with healthcare professionals, your doctor, and other qualified specialists. And do not change what your healthcare professional advises based upon anything you heard a parent say in this podcast. We are not addiction experts. Just parents sharing our personal experiences with other parents.